0: There are those who see federalism as panacea for all kinds of things. And then there are others who see federalism as the first step to secession.
1: There are emerging challenges as the very nature of federation is dynamic. So many, many questions are coming, demanding
2: questions. Federalism, one way or another, one form or another, it is not about federalism or something else, but it is federalism. But again, the question is which kind of federalism?
3: There is a lot of improvement, a lot of agreement on, on many issues, and what is missing is the political one.
0: Peacebuilding is not just about the end of war, but it is also about maintaining social stability and providing the kinds of services that your population expects from a state.
4: Welcome to Forum Fedcast, exploring the world of federalism and multi-level governance. Brought to you by the Forum of Federations, the global network on federal and devolved governance. Contemporary conflicts are often rooted in divisions between majority and minority groups. Marginalisation or repression of one group by another creates and exacerbates tensions. When a minority group is excluded from meaningful participation in political and economic life, simmering divisions can very quickly explode into violent conflict. Federalism is seen by some in the international community as an important tool to support peacebuilding and reconciliation processes in divided societies. Federal models allow for self-determination and accommodation of diversity within a unified nation-state. They provide an institutional space for minority groups to make their own decisions without requiring the consent of the central government. On the other hand, federalism is no peacebuilding panacea. Building sustainable peace is a dynamic and non-linear endeavour. There are challenges in creating a federal model that can meet the needs of all groups, and in a divided society, a governance system may face setbacks that threaten the unity of the state. In September 2020, the Forum assembled practitioners from around the world to explore how federalism has been used to support peacebuilding and conflict resolution processes. The discussion was organised as part of Geneva Peace Week, a leading annual event in the international peacebuilding calendar. In this episode of Forum Fedcast, we present, for your listening pleasure, the full panel discussion. Enjoy.
0: Good evening, good afternoon, and good morning to all of you joining us from the various time zones around the world. Thank you to all our participants and all those who will be listening to this panel. The panel discussion today is on federalism as a peace-building tool in divided societies. This is the second year that the Forum of Federations has organized a panel, the Geneva Peace Week. And we're very grateful to the hosts of the Geneva Peace Week for giving us an opportunity to put this panel together. It's a pleasure for us to organize this year's event in partnership with the government of Ethiopia who has been a steadfast supporter of the work of the forum in Ethiopia. Let me begin at the outset by thanking our panelists who join us across three continents to take time out from the very busy schedules to be here for this event. I also would like to thank the Swiss Development Corporation and Global Affairs Canada without whose ongoing support we could not have put this event together. Since the end of the Cold War, there has been an increased use of federalism as a tool of conflict resolution in deeply divided societies. The potential of federalism to facilitate the accommodation of differences, to protect minority groups, to prevent territorial disintegration, and to craft an architecture of stability in deeply divided societies has made it an attractive way of organizing politics in diverse and large societies. Since 1990, a number of countries such as Ethiopia, Sudan, Nepal, South Africa, and Bosnia have experimented with various forms of federalism, while others such as Cyprus, Myanmar, and the Philippines have considered the federal option as an important pathway to preserving national unity and resolving conflict. The panel brings together practitioners from three countries who consider how federalism has either helped to establish peace in their countries, or is seen as being at the heart of the reconciliation process, and preserving unity at the end of decades of conflict. We have here represented three countries. Ethiopia, that has had experience of building and managing a federal system for almost three decades now. We have Myanmar, which is having its own discussions around how to federalize the country in order to end decades of conflict and insurgency. And we have Cyprus. Where since the 70s, at least under the UN agreements, there is an articulated position that the future of the country has to be built on the basis of bi-communal, bi-national federalism, a bi-zonal federalism, but where there hasn't yet been substantive engagement on moving in the direction of federalism. And so we see three countries at three different points in their evolution or their journey towards federalism. Let me start by introducing our three accomplished participants. The first person I'd like to introduce is Her Excellency Almaz Mekonin, State Minister of Peacebuilding and National Consensus at the Ministry of Peace from the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Her Excellency has more than two decades of versatile experience at various levels of government, both federally as well as at the subnational level. She has worked in parliament and within the executive. Since 2008, she has been a member of the Addis Ababa City Council and she has also worked as a member of the Legal and Administrative Standing Committee of Parliament, as well as Public and International Relations Department head at the Parliament of Ethiopia. She's a lawyer by training, having trained in international relations and international law from the University of Amsterdam. The second person I'd like to introduce is Deria Beatli, a peace activist born and raised in Cyprus. She has lived and worked in the United Kingdom, Belgium, Turkey, and France. That helped her go beyond the traditional narratives and looks at society from a very different perspective. She is an accomplished print and broadcast journalist and also has been a very, very active member of civil society, pushing for the establishment of a EU member, Federal Cyprus. She's a founding board member of the Cyprus EU Association and the Third Community Forum. The last person I will introduce this morning, and I I leave him for last because he is also a colleague, is Tet Milwin, who is the head of the Forum of Federation's country office in Myanmar. But in addition to that, Tet has been a long-time civil society activist within Myanmar. He was, at one time, the public relations officer for the All-Burma Federation of Students Union in Mandalay. He worked as a research associate at Myanmar Ingress looking at politics and socioeconomic research programs. He has been a junior member of the Peace Negotiation Dialogues. He attended the Oslo Forum on Democratization, Peace, Global Governance, and Mid-Level Professionals. Even though he is originally by training a medical doctor, he also holds a master's degree in political science from the Central European University. So thank you, panelists, for joining us this morning. I hope it'll be a riveting and engaging discussion that we have on this panel. This panel will explore how federalism and federal state architecture has been used to support peace building and conflict resolution efforts, looking at successes and failures and challenges. The panel will aim to contribute to building knowledge on the dynamics between federalism and peace building. The panel will also consider the challenging process by which federalism has been established in some countries. And the challenges that lie ahead for those who are on their journey towards federalism or not. What we're going to do is, I have three core questions that I will pose to each of the panelists, and then have them talk about their own experiences, the experiences from their own country, in how these issues are being addressed or have been addressed. And then as the the discussion moves forward, we can go down different pathways to tease out different issues. So let me start with Minister McConnell. How has federalism been used as a peace-building tool in your country? In other words, what is it that brought Ethiopia to the path of federalism after many years of centralized rule and before that you know, rule in the form of an absolutist monarchy?
1: Thank you, Ropak, for giving me this opportunity. Um, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank the organizers Forum of Federation for organizing this important panel and discuss on this important issue. And I would like to start by addressing the question by federal system as a remedy to ethno-national conflict in Ethiopia. So as you may know very well, prior to the federal arrangement, we had different regimes like the monarchy and the dictator regime, the Dirk regime, so, a central extended uh, suppression and oppression of identities, deprivation of human and democratic rights, monarchical and military dictator, dictatorial rule, unitary philosophy and operational arrangements that nice self rule, lack of development with extreme poverty and backwardness were the real manifestation of the past Ethiopia, which in turn led to protesters and civil wars that devastated us again human and capital resources of the country. Those parodic protests occurred in several parts of the country during that time and later replaced with the protracted civil war which fully toppled the, the Zen military regime. So then immediately after the downfall of the military regime, the Dirk regime, in 1991, a transitional government was established with responsibility including ensuring peace and security and stability in the first of all, and organizing a constitutional commission to draft the constitution, establishing a constitutional assembly uh, in order to ratify the draft constitution, and also organizing national election as per the constitution. Moreover, in this process, about 27 political parties, among them were 17 were armed political movements, and civil societies were represented in the transitional government, That was, uh, for the first time in Ethiopia's history, different political groups with varying interests and objectives, dialogue together and decide on the future of the country. Accordingly, the internal political situation was characterized by ethnic identity, cleavages that led to extreme political divisions. Broadly speaking, the political positions held by the then political parties could be categorized into three. The first one, there were centripetal forces that had the objective to bring back the overthrown regime and unitary system. Secondly, there were also centrifugal forces that are in sharp antagonism, with the former, put secession as only option to overcome the risk of being under national oppression. And in third one, forces, there were also forces that believe on democratic, multinational and multicultural union, based on the will and consent of the nationists and nationalists of, and peoples of Ethiopia. And finally, a position that aimed at maintaining unity in diversity. Unity in diversity, which was anti-Kabel, anti anti before, was finally realized. Hence, the country was the verge of, at the verge of disintegration, because the time was also in the Cold War, as you have already mentioned, and Ethiopia has a background with the socialist camp because the regime has really uh, affiliated very well with the socialist uh, system. The way out from this deep political division were really to, to form a transitional government that include all the political forces and representatives of several communities of the Ethiopian people. And then to draft a constitution that to be ratified on political negotiations of the political forces and to establish the electoral board and carry out elections according to the constitution. And finally, the actual process had to pass through this roadmap and was indeed realized with great commitment to accommodate the various interests and political positions that constitution was ratified. Finally, a national and regional election was carried out for the first time in the history of Ethiopia, perhaps per the constitution and forces of democratic, multinational and multicultural union, that stood for unity with diversity, won in the first historic election in the country uh, at federal, as well as as at state council's level. Thank you,
0: thank you very much, Minister. So Derya, let me turn to you on Cyprus. The issue of federalism has been discussed as part of the Cyprus settlement since the 1970s. Yet of all of these cases uh, that we have represented here today, there's probably been the least movement in Cyprus. And I think it'd be interesting to understand why federalism was seen as a solution or is still seen as a solution, or is it? And what the challenges uh, have been in terms of moving forward in Cyprus?
3: Well, very good questions, actually, and a very good time, I should say. Well, first of all, thank you very much for, um, for this discussion. I feel honored to be here. And I also feel um, very jealous of a peace minister. Uh, How I wish we could um, get to that point of having a a federation and a peace minister um, in Cyprus. Unfortunately, our reality is completely different. We have been discussing federation since 1977. To be exact, it was a UN Security Council um, decision, actually, that was agreed by the leaders of the, that time, the Turkish Cypriot and um, Greek Cypriot leaders. And um, we have been discussing on and off, I should say, a bizonal, bi-communal federation since then. There have been leaders from, from the left, from the right, from the middle, discussing the same issue over and over. And um, nowadays, actually, the Turkish Cypriot community is heading towards electing our leader for the next five years on the 11th of October. And we are in the process of the election campaigns right now. And there is the current leader who is insisting on a federal settlement There is another candidate that is sort of talking about federation but with an intimidation, let's say. And the rest is talking about a two-state solution, which is practically partition. And when this is happening, there is also our so-called motherlands, the Turkey and Greece. And now France and Germany getting involved as well trying to calm down the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean. We're fighting, or rather they're fighting and we're watching, um, over the gas in the Eastern Mediterranean. And we do see Turkey claiming the Turkish Cypriot rights over gas in the Eastern Mediterranean, with Turkish Cypriots watching. And we are also trying to say that the elections on the 11th of October need to be the decision of the Turkish Cypriots to decide on the leader who is going to start the negotiations right after the elections, which was a few days back confirmed by uh, Mr. Guterres, the UN Secretary General, and Turkish leadership keeps telling us that it may not be exactly our decision. So we are um, actually in the middle of all these discussions in Cyprus. People coming and going to the island from the United States, from Russia, from the EU, trying to calm down the situation and also further their own interests over the island.
0: The Cypriot case in that sense is very I think very unlike Ethiopia, and we'll hear about Myanmar in a moment, in that you have a situation of a deeply divided society with outside powers that have a veto on how the process moves forward.
3: That's right. I mean, this has always been the case. Cyprus has been in the appetite of many different civilizations over centuries, and many different powers have been trying to play games over Cyprus. But... I have to say that, unfortunately, we as Cypriots did not play our part of being together, getting together, working together either. So I think we should share the responsibility of still being a deeply divided society.
2: I'll
0: come back to that question in a minute. I'm going to move to Ted. Thank you very much for your, your intervention. Ted. again, to return to the issue of Myanmar, as you and I know, before 2012-2011, Federalism was the F word in Myanmar, and nobody would talk about it. And yet this is now at the heart of ongoing political negotiations in the country. So if you would please address how you or people in Myanmar or parties in Myanmar or stakeholders in Myanmar have come to see federalism as such an important tool in building reconciliation within the country.
2: Thank you very much, Rupak, and I'm honored to be a part of this panel. As you said, federalism has become an from a taboo word to the talk of the town uh, for recent years. Before I delve into that issue, I'd like to start with a little bit of historical context because I think it it, it is very important to go back to history and look at the situation at the modern state formation in Myanmar. As you know, Myanmar essentially was an agrarian society pretty much before the British colonized the country completely in 1885, and then annexed as like a, a part of British India. Before the British rule, if you look at what Myanmar is now today, you will see the central plains of the Irawadi Valley and the hill regions in the north, in the east, and in the west. And when British uh, took over the country, they devised a very interesting thing, a two system of governance. So they devised a system for the central plains of the Irawaday Valley and another system, which they call the frontier area system, frontier area administration, for the hill regions. So when in 1947, after the Second World War, we started the the negotiations with the British for the independence, it was a dire need for the central plains of the Irrawaddy Valley, the people of the valley, and also the people of the hill regions together to form an agreement to get independence from, from the British Empire. So from the very beginning of the modern state formation in Myanmar, we can see the need of a territorial division of powers, or at least a territorial agreement of how people will govern the country, and of course, as well, partly on the basis of ethnicity since the very beginning of the founding days. But after 10 or so years of independence, the ethnic minorities were not very happy with the arrangements. So they call for constitutional negotiations of how they would devise a constitutional federalism in independent Burma. And the military took this as an excuse, a justification, raison d'etre, to stage the coup. And since 1962, we was under the military dictatorship for next 60 years or so. And with the military dictatorship, the authoritarian rule, and the military propaganda as such that federalism would disintegrate the union, and uh, it will have a huge impact on the territorial integrity of the nation. With that, 65% of the majority Bama people, they started to see federalism as a danger, as a threat to the integration of the union, whereas for the ethnic minorities, this has been the dearest political aspiration for more than six decades. And with the democratic transition starting in 2011, the government started to revisit this and then try to negotiate and the civil strife on the basis of federalism. And since then, federalism has become the, the talk of the town, the flavor of the town. But yet the dilemma or the question is, which kind of federalism would like to adopt in Myanmar? So this is how it evolved over time. And as you can see, Because of the military dictatorship, and also the pre-colonial and post-colonial nature of the society, we're pretty much a divided society. 65% of the majority Burma people on one side, and 35% of more than 130 ethnic groups on the other side.
0: Just to clarify, for those who are listening in, the federal idea didn't just magically appear in 2011 or 2012. This was something that was originally discussed also in Pangong after independence right and so this yeah. is this is essentially the wheel coming a full circle exactly in terms of talking about future settlements for the country
2: absolutely yeah the idea of federalism rooted in the 1947 panglong agreement this agreement essentially brought in independence for the country and since then we haven't solved this issue of how we would govern this very diverse ethnically religiously diverse state
4: forum fedcast is brought to you by the forum of federations the global network on federal and evolved governance
0: the various presentations have raised an important issue that's often contested in in the federal context there are those who see federalism as panacea for all kinds of things And then there are others who see federalism as the first step to secession. And this is something I think we can talk about later. To return to Minister McConnell, of all the three cases presented, Ethiopia has now been a federation for almost three decades. And what I would like to do is to ask you a little bit to reflect on Ethiopia's experience as a federation, particularly in terms of what you think has worked, what hasn't worked, and what you think is the path forward in terms of the evolution of Ethiopian federalism.
4: Thank
1: you again. I would like to address this question, uh, dividing into two major aspects. In the first one, I would like to address about the achievements of the Federation. And on the other hand, I would like to talk about the challenges that we are facing, uh, the implementation of Federation. So uh, just to address about the success in the achievement of the Federation, since the formation of the Federation, peace and security has been maintained for the last 27 years which creates a favorable condition for development. though it's not perfect, actually. It's also the danger of disintegration was completely curved. During that time, many countries have been disintegrated. Very simple example, the Russian Federation has been completely disintegrated. And as I have already mentioned it previously, it was completely afflicted, It was a socialist camp. So everybody was expecting this country will be disintegrated, but... Lucky enough, the federal system has completely covered the problem, so we remain and we we, we take it like a rescue. It is an achievement that the legacy of unitarism that denies diversity has been replaced with an agenda that respects cultural groups and gives place self-rule and symbols of democratic union, like Constitution Day, the National Flag Day, National Emblem Day, and big mega projects like GERD the Renaissance dam, I mean, and other mega-projects have been common agenda of the general public. Democratic republicanism, like the exercise of election and the creation of multi-party system, are being realized. The role of nations and nationalists in socio-economic growth through extensive participation has fostered democratic process to the level that people are continuously demanding to improve their well-being. Moreover, broad-based development with a rate of growth at level of double-digit that continued for at least 40 consecutive years. Fastest but not oil-based have been also realized in this country. Federalism and state-led development paradigm success was there. Dramatic increase in capacity to finance mega-projects, as I have already mentioned. Many, many dams have been established. Dams like GERD, which is a very big one, first in Africa maybe, and train networks, which have been unthinkable before. Rural and urban electrification and electrification, not only electrification, but telecommunication also, even in the rural areas. Road networks, sugar projectors, fertilizers, IC technology, industrial parks have been established in, in, in a marvelous way. In addition, in the way of this, there was also a building in market network. Expansion of elementary schools, secondary schools, Tibet. More than 44 public universities, in addition to many private ones, are also established. Expansion of health services that reach the lost administrative territories. And land ownership becomes, as a property of the peasants, not the landlords, actually. That was on, not only an economic question, it was a political question for many years in the history of Ethiopia. And this has been answered by the constitution. And it, it was able to mitigate effect of respective drought that had been coming every 10 years in the history of Ethiopia, that's also possible to maintain. So this was the achievement that we have practiced and experienced for the last 30 years, I mean three decades, almost in seven years. On the other hand, there was also challenges, not only the success, but also we are still facing the challenges of this federation. The first one is failure to maintaining balance between the self-rule and the shared rule which in turn led to disputes and violation of some principles, actually. And extended practice of maladministration or rent-seeking corruption is also there. These are another challenge that we are facing this time. Weak institutional capacity that could address emerging challenges. There are emerging challenges as the very nature of federation is dynamic. So many, many questions are coming, demanding questions. Interests are coming from the public, and no one is going to answer these questions also. So weak intergovernmental relations dominated, dominant party controlled. Between regions, the interaction is very weak. So we need to work a lot. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Minister. I think the two issues you've highlighted, uh, I think, are very important. Uh, The first one, of course, is the entire issue around the balance between self-rule and shared rule. Uh, that's a very, very key question at the heart of all federations. And the second is the dynamic nature of politics and having to adapt to changing social, economic uh, and political situations in a country. And again, these are some of the lessons we can draw on for the other end. devia in the case of, of Cyprus, given the challenges that you have to deal with in terms of outside intervention, what in your views would be some of the design issues you think that might both satisfy the external players in Cyprus as well as meet the aspirations of Cypriots in terms of building a unified federal Cyprus?
3: I think we have to look at the Cypriots approach to to a federal Cyprus or let's say to um, building this federal Cyprus that we have been discussing over years and the latest Signed agreement, I will say, although um, it wasn't actually signed, but it was sort of pushed to be signed by the two leaders in 2002. That was the Annan plan, proposed in 2002 by the um, Secretary General Kofi Annan back then. And after long negotiations, a few versions of the Annan plan came on the table. And finally, We voted for the Fifth Annan Plan a few days before Cyprus's accession to the European Union. It was, I think, about a week ago. But the accession treaty was already signed in Athens the year before. So back then, the Greek Cypriots would become a, a member of the European Union unilaterally because Protocol 10 that was annexed to the accession treaty was saying that the AKI community, the EU rules and regulations, would be suspended in the Turkish Cypriot community. So if we look at the atmosphere back then, Turkish Cypriots actually wanted to go for a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation with political equality. That was the Anand plan, basically. Because there were economic difficulties, And there was this prospect of the membership, the EU membership, that was the carrot for Turkish Cypriots. On the other hand, the Greek Cypriots already signed the agreement, the accession agreement to the European Union, which meant security for them. As a small island, they were afraid from Turkey and the European Union membership would bring them security. So there were actually different expectations and aspirations from the Annan plan back then. The issues in the Annan plan and um, on the discussions are very much discussed and mostly agreed upon. But what is missing, what was missing back then and what is still missing on either one side or the other is the political one. Maybe I shouldn't say either on the one side or the other because there are other actors in mold as well. I'm talking about obviously the guarantors of the current Republic of Cyprus which was formed in 1960 after the end of the British rule in Cyprus. And it seems that bringing everybody on the same table to agree on different issues is possible, it is still possible, And I was reading a late study a few days back on different different formulas for dossier that have been discussed. It was in plan. It is now in the Guterres framework, which is the latest basis of discussions. One is the territory, because currently Cyprus is divided into two. In the north, there is the Turkish Cypriots living. In the south, there are the Greek Cypriots. So one issue is territory. The other issue is the property. Because after the division, there is a lot of Greek Cypriot property that is left in the north and Turkish Cypriot property that is left in the south. And the discussion over what is going to happen to to this a difficult part of of the negotiations. The other one is guarantee. We currently have five armies on the island claiming to protect us from external danger. So how are we going to deal with this is another one. And of course, the, the most important is the federation itself, power sharing. How are we going to build this? The remarks of the Secretary General, Mr. Guterres, back in Cran, Montana, that was the failure of the latest talks in 2017, was that, We are very close to a settlement. There is a lot of improvement, a lot of agreement on on many issues. And what is missing is the political will. Let's hope that this political will will be existing on all sides at the same time. So we'll see the federation in Cyprus soon.
0: Daria, is it fair to say that federalism still remains at the heart of the settlement? Or the the potential settlement in Cyprus?
3: It is the only way.
0: Thank you very much.
3: Thank
0: you. Same question for you. Do all stakeholders in Myanmar see federalism as the way forward in Myanmar, even when they disagree on what kind of federalism? Or is it that some pay lip service, but really are not federally inclined?
2: Absolutely. Almost all major stakeholders in Myanmar politics, they agree federalism one way or another, one form or another. It is not about federalism or something else, but it is federalism. But again the question is which kind of federalism? What model? So I was very impressed hearing the Ethiopian minister talking about the federal and subnational division of power and implementation in Ethiopia. That is inspiring. In Myanmar, if you look at the constitution the 2008 constitution, which was sponsored by the military. You can see the character of federalism, federation in Myanmar is a very much a highly centralized federation. We have a constitutional division of powers, but still very little for subnational level. And then the fiscal arrangements are still very centralized. We do have two houses of legislature and also subnational legislatures. We have a constitutional tribunal and, and the list goes on. So nominally, you can see all the constituent requirements, constituent parts of a federal system in place in Myanmar, constitutionally. But as uh, we have seen in the case of Ethiopia, the political process is very much also a major variable, a major factor for the implementation of a federal state in the country. Because not surprising, the military still Still holds a very important role in countries' politics. 25% of the seats are reserved for them in national level legislature as well as in the sub national legislatures. And three most important cabinet portfolios, namely the Home Affairs, Home Ministry, the Defense Ministry, and the Border Affairs Ministry, are held by appointees. They come from the military commander in chief appointments. And also, the constitution in Myanmar, I think it, is, it really suffices to say it is the most difficult constitution in the world currently to change, to amend, because you need more than all elected seats, all elected MPs. You always need a military military vote, the military approval to change the constitution. But nevertheless, I think it is also important to look at the political process, because as the Ethiopian minister rightly pointed out, it's a very similar situation in Myanmar because when we started our political transition in 2010, after a very controversial 2010 election, the military backed USDP party got into power. They were in power both at the national and sub national levels. So you can see there is not really space for sub national governments to fight for, for their decentralized roles because they are from the same dominant political party. So the party hierarchy was the most important thing for them. And that pattern repeated itself in 2015, with the landslide victory of the National League for Democracy, led by Nobel Peace Laureate Don San Suu Kyi. The same thing happened. She and her party won for more than 80% of the elected seats in the parliament. And yet, because both at the national level and subnational level, people in power are from the same party. They really don't fight much for more decentralized roles. So after after the democratic transition, we started the peace negotiations. And the pattern is successive central government, they are up for federalism. But what they want is actually an incremental implementation of decentralization. Whereas for the ethnic minorities and the ethnic armed organizations, we have the longest civil war in the history of the world. For the ethnic minorities, both the armed groups and ethnic political parties, they want a drastic and quicker, what they call genuine federalism. Basically, what they are talking about is more decentralized version of federalism. So with the elections looming in two months, we will have the elections in in November, we will see how the dynamics in the central government and also sub-national levels will change. And that will also hugely have an impact on the nature of federalism in this country, in Myanmar, I mean.
4: For more from the world of federalism and multi level governance, check out forumfed.org. That's forumfed.org. Mr.
0: McCondon, I'm going to ask you as somebody who has been a practitioner of federalism for almost three decades, building a new federal system uh, in Ethiopia from the very beginning, what advice or what lessons? would you offer others who are setting on their journey towards federalism, whether it is in Africa or anywhere else in the world? I mean, around Ethiopia, you have a number of countries who are wrestling with the question of building a more federal state. South Sudan, of course, but also Sudan, Somalia. Kenya had its own debates around federalism, didn't become a federal country. But, you know, based on your own experience and Ethiopian experience, any lessons, advice that you would offer?
1: Yes, we, after exercising and expressing this new state formation, democratic federalism, as I have already mentioned it, the challenges that we have faced is there. So with all these problems and good practices and the achievements, we got a lesson. Anybody could take uh, all these lessons because the common feature is the same for, for the federation, any federation. Any federation has its own feature and these are common in all aspects, be it ethnic, be it geography or any kind of format information. So the lessons that we have learned through the process is I think it's important to avoid defamation and polarization among all concerned. and basic challenges have emerged from within the system and hence with own capacity and solutions can only be emerged from within the system itself. In that case, there is no need of any foreign intervention. So it's better to avoid, I think, with the Cyprus case. This is a lesson that you should have to get, also taken into consideration. Avoiding external intervention in our internal affairs is very important. This is a lesson that we have got in the case of Ethiopia. And moreover, inclusive national dialogue at all levels is the only way out. This is the national dialogue, which is inclusive one. is very important at all levels, at the grassroots level, National At national dialogue, so with the party political parties level, a scholars level, any kind of community at the community level, like youth, women, at all levels, inclusive dialogue is very important. In that case, I think it's important to mention that Forum of Federation is taking the initiative to make national dialogues in Ethiopia this time. So I would like to take this opportunity to thank the Forum of Federation for getting and taking this initiative to organize such kind of national dialogues among political parties and civil societies and famous and influential peoples, so that the problem is the challenges that we are facing this time could be solved with the will and initiative of the general public. I have to appreciate and express my thank you to the Forum of Federation. Moreover, all political forces and interest groups must sit together and use to address the current challenges. This is what we are doing with the Forum of Federation. Now, we have started today even. There is a dialogue between political parties in the history of the country because people are not agreed on the the past history of Ethiopia. You know, history could be up to the writer, you know. So someone will agree and some not. So they are still discussing those concerned political parties and other entities. So I think Forum of Federation is doing its best to make the national dialogues in Ethiopia practical. So thank you very much. Moreover, we have also a lesson that to take the constitution as a baseline. Try for better, but not less than what the constitution provides for. It's better to domesticize. I mean, to make it practical in your own way. So that the constitution will answer the dynamic questions, the dynamic nature of demanding society's question. So I think it's better to take constitution as it is nature. And for all these questions to answer also, to solve all the challenges, it's important to have vibrant and dynamic leadership so that all the dynamic questions, all the demanding issues will be answered proactively. Not following the questions, but proactively to answer all the questions. The demand of the society is very important. This is the major lessons that we have learned. From the process of the Federation. So I think it's important to make it practical, to get the lesson and make it implemented in a way of the way forward. Thank you very much again.
0: Daria, in the case of Cyprus, of course, it's slightly different because Cyprus has not quite begun its journey towards federalism. But as somebody who's a peace activist and active in civil society, how do you see civil society playing a role in moving the needle? On a peace settlement?
3: Firstly, I want to say that I have noted down the four advice of Madam Minister. Thank you very much. And I have to say that there isn't much difference than my own notes as peace activists, as the civil society in Cyprus to, to get there. Well, Let me say that I was talking about a recent study, which was done by two universities, one in the UK and the other one in Cyprus, on both communities. And they came up with a percentage, a very hopeful percentage of people supporting a bicommunal, bizonal federation, as it is proposed right now. And it's 76% of the Greek Cypriots... And 71% of the Turkish Cypriots. And this is very promising. When we look at the figures of the Anon plan, it was 75% against federation in the Greek Cypriot community. And now we move to 76% supporting or finding it tolerable in the Greek Cypriot community. In the Turkish Cypriot community is almost the same. There isn't much difference with regards to the public opinion. What is missing is, as I said, the political will is missing, trust is missing between the two communities, And this is where the civil society comes into the picture. We need to listen to each other. We need to understand. We need to start talking each other's language, literally, and talking the, the languages, understanding what the other communities' hopes and fears are, because they're completely different. My fear is much different than uh, Greek Cypriot peace activists. Uh, Well, actually, for the peace activists, more or less we have the same fear, which is partition. But uh, let's say a a, a Greek Cypriot that uh, has um, other fears. So, firstly, we need to get together as peace activists because we haven't been doing this either. We're trying to fight against the forces against the reunification of our country, on our separate sides. Us trying to fight against the nationalism, the Turkish nationalism, basically, and my compatriots on the other side, working for federation, fights the Hellenic nationalism, which is trying to block it. We need to get together and fight together. This is what has been missing since the beginning, and unfortunately, it is still missing. And this is where my organization comes into the picture trying to build the third community. So we, we don't want to talk about the two communities anymore, but we are talking about creating a third community who believes in living together. So I think that's, that is very important. And this is what keeps us going Really, this hope. Thank
0: you, Denia. Ted, the final question or comment from you. You mentioned that Myanmar is heading for an election and, you know, we'll find out after the elections what direction the peace talks will take. In your view, what are some of the biggest hurdles, regardless of the outcome of the election, that needs to be surmounted as Myanmar moves towards some form of democratic federalism?
2: I think what I will say about Myanmar will very much resonate with the two cases, Cyprus and Ethiopia as well. One of the biggest challenges for federalism on the way forward in Myanmar is around 65% of the population who are Burma ethnic people, Burma majority, and 35% of the rest, the small minorities. And after more than 60 years of military dictatorship, along with press censorship and this taboo of federalism, because the propaganda was always that federalism would ultimately disintegrate the country, disintegrate the Union. So more than half of the population still believe in this, the haunting aspect, the myth or the propaganda that federalism is a bad thing. And as you can see, as Myanmar is going towards a democratic country, the democratic pressure, if there is no democratic pressure from the population, to federalize the country, uh, the elected government is more or less very much indifferent to to this issue because they don't see an incentive for federalism uh, in the country. Of course, if they don't see ending the decade-long civil war as an incentive good enough. So the thing with Myanmar is that is what basically we are uh, working on. We have been supporting through the process. Uh, We are trying to tell people federalism not necessarily is for secession, but rather it is a tool to solve the conflict in this country. And the elites basically have agreed upon that, but still the population, the grassroots, this is still a challenge. A related challenge is the visionary leadership, as Minister McConnell rightly said, because if you see the electoral results in 2015, the NOD-1, more than 80 percent of the seats. So with this kind of democratic legitimacy, I think even if the population, the vast majority of the people are indifferent or are nonchalant about the dire need for federalism, the visionary leadership can take it forward and start federal reforms. Basically, we are already in a federal setup, but we need more constitutional divisional powers more fiscal assignments, taxation assignments, and expenditure assignments, and also intergovernmental relations. We need to structure proper intergovernmental relations between the subnational and the national level government. So I think these are the challenges. And of course, from the side of the ethnic minorities, it is also very important for them to communicate what they want to the vast majority, the 65% of the population, the Pama people, so that we are on the same page. All the ethnic groups are on the same page for a system of federalism that will end the civil conflict in Myanmar. I think that these are the challenges from my side to contribute. This is Forum Fedcast.
0: Before we wind up, I just want to draw out some of the issues that we've discussed. The first thing I think that merits repeating again, that federalism is merely a tool, right? It's, It's neither good nor bad. It's like a hammer. I mean, if you hit somebody on the head with a hammer, it's bad. If you use it to hit a nail in, that's what its intended purpose is. So federalism is neither good nor bad. It's a mere tool. It's how it is then used to settle conflict, because it provides the ability to actually take a divided society on the path of reconciliation. I think the second thing that has to be drawn out, as Minister McConnell mentioned in the case of Ethiopia, is at the end of the day, The kind of system you create has to be rooted in your own reality. No two federations are alike. Every federation is different, as it should be, because it should be a response to the particular social, economic, political context of the country in which it is established. I think the third thing, again, that emerges from this is the whole issue of whether federalism enables unity or enables secession. And again, on that, I would say that it is meant as a tool to preserve the unity and integrity of a country, but at the same time, badly designed, poorly thought out processes and institutions can aid and abet the idea of separatism or separation. And to be fair, through history, if one were to look at the pathology of federations, there are a number of federations around the world which have failed. And so as we think about how we design federations or how to use federalism as a tool to bridge deeply divided societies, I think it's important both to draw on the positive lessons that one sees from existing federations as well as to learn from the negative experiences that led to state breakdown and disintegration in federations that have failed. Because I think it's only that composite knowledge that's then going to help one adequately use federalism as a tool for peace building and establishing a unified state. Having said that, I think also it's fair to recognize that federalism is probably not the tool you want to use in every society. I mean, looking at the three cases we have here, Ethiopia, Cyprus, Myanmar, what is particular about these countries, of course, is that all of these countries have territorially defined minorities or territorially defined ethnolinguistic groups. So where you have divided societies that are not ethno territorially defined, there may be a challenge and maybe you know, a centralized state with some kind of consociational arrangement is a better way to move forward in that case. And I think the last comment I would like to make is in the context of what is going on in Ethiopia. Ethiopia has now been a federal state for 27 years, as the Minister McConnell pointed out, uh, but they too are at a Historic crossroads in the politics of the country. And this goes to the issue of saying that just because one has established a federal system, it's not the end of history. Federalism is dynamic because it is a response to the social, economic, political demands of a population. And these evolve and change over time. And so when one crafts a federal system, one has to craft institutions and processes that are flexible and can respond to the needs of the population as things change i mean who would have thought a year ago that we would be in this pandemic situation it's hard enough for countries that are socioeconomically challenged developmentally but even in first world federations i mean i'm speaking to you here from canada now where canada has had historically some of the most fiscally decentralized subnational entities who've been very very autonomous because they've been able to raise their own source revenue well, now with all the lockdowns uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic, provincial revenues have collapsed completely. And so this is going to impart a new dynamic into the relationship between the provincial governments and the federal government, because in this pandemic situation, the only level of government that has the ability to spend money is going to be the national government the federal government. I mean, all this to say that federalism is dynamic, and it's important that policymakers and stakeholders recognize that it's dynamic and that it's important from time to time to revisit the arrangements that you may have come to. And so peace building is not just about the end of war, but it is also about maintaining social stability and providing the kinds of services that your population expects from a state. So with this, I will end today's panel discussion. Again, I want to thank you all very much, Minister McConnell, Deria Beatley, Ted Milwin for taking the time to be with us today. I know you all have very busy schedules.
3: Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.
4: That was Forum Fedcast. This conversation appeared in the Geneva Peace Week 2020 digital series you can view the entire digital series online at genevapeaceweek.ch. For more on the Forum's work in Ethiopia, Myanmar and Cyprus, and resources on federalism and multi-level governance, check out our website, forumfed.org. That's forumfed.org. You can also find us at ForumFed on Twitter and as Forum of Federations on Facebook and YouTube. Get in touch with the podcast by emailing podcast at forumfed.org. That's podcast at forumfed.org. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Liam Whittington. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Forum Fedcast.